I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. This week on the podcast, where do we go from here? Black Americans and increasing numbers of allies are taking to the streets demanding justice in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. But what does justice look like? Lots of attention is focused on law enforcement with calls to defund police departments, some view more as occupying oppressors than public safety servants. But the reach of racism in America goes much further than policing, touching nearly every facet of society. We have two voices of black activism here to take stock of this moment. Monica Cannon Grant is the founder of Violence in Boston, a nonprofit committed to reducing the levels of violence and trauma experienced by those in disenfranchised communities. She was the principal organizer of the largest Boston demonstration to date following George Floyd's killing the March earlier this month in Franklin Park. Welcome, Monica. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Reverend Jeffrey Brown is an associate pastor at the historic 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury and founder of My City at Peace, a national anti-violence and housing advocacy group. He was also a leader of the widely acclaimed clergy efforts in the 1990s to combat gang and gun violence in Boston. Reverend Jeff Brown, good to have you with us. Good to be here. So Monica, a lot of people have said we're on the cusp of, uh, of what may be a sustained movement uh, in this city, in this country, uh, of a kind we haven't seen in decades. Do you, do you think that's right? Oh, I absolutely do. I think this is our civil rights movement. I think there's never been a time in history where 23 days straight people have protested or done demonstrations in response to what's happening. And what I've been telling people is, you know, I think for Black people, we've been in a war that we just haven't shown up to out of exhaustion and, and PTSD and anxiety and just all the things that we experience. And I think now we're like, enough is enough. Um, something has to change. And I think that's across the board. I don't think it's just activists. I think it's just across the board. Everybody's like, okay, we're in this movement. What, what can I do and what should I be doing? And uh, Reverend Jeff Brown, what do you, what do you sort of make of the, of the moment we're in? Well, I think it's the monumental moment of our times. Um, you know, just as um, my parents and grandparents would talk about uh, conditions of African-Americans in their time and with my parents, the move to, uh, you know, make the world better. We're at a decision right now as to whether or not we're going to rise to make our world better for our children or leave the world in a worse condition. The cycle of violence and police has been ongoing for decades and, and arguably centuries. And it's time to break that cycle. And I'm thinking that the moment is ripe now for us to begin to do that. And how do we, how do we begin to make, make things right? I, I, Monica is the embodiment of that. Um, uh, you know, in 2015, I was in Ferguson, Missouri, um, marching and protesting with the youth that was there. Uh, I thought that, you know, uh, in some ways that was a beginning indicator of that. But I think now watching eight minutes and 46 seconds of oppression that ends in death, that comes from the hands of the enforcement arm of a structural system that uh, continually brings down African-Americans. I think it's, it's time now for people to, you know, not to cry, but to scream 
as uh, an old 60s poet used to say, it's a time to say enough is enough. It's a time to say uh, we, have to, we have to see this change through. And the one thing that I noticed about uh, Monica's uh, demonstration was that you had 55,000 people there and they weren't all black. They were people from uh, all over the place who came and said, you know, yeah, time is now to do something differently. And so I think we're, we're at that moment. And I think although primarily we're focusing on African-Americans, people are seeking to change everything for everybody. And Monica, what, what did you make of that uh, uh, sort of this diversity of the, of the crowds that a lot of people, as Jeff just did, have commented on and this kind of what appears to be, uh, you know, I don't know if you call it a sudden sort of awakening among, among whites or others to the, 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 the plague of racism. Certainly black people have known about racism, but it seems like there is this kind of sudden uh, uh, kind of coming to grips with it and, and then taking at least the first steps of some action among other folks. What do you what do you make of that? Or what do you think, uh, what do you attribute that to? So, I mean, honestly, there's been an influx, but there's always been white accomplices in the movement. And I think history has shown us that when you look at Asada Shakur and what she experienced, it was white people that helped build her out of jail and get her out of the country to safety. Um, and, you know, when you look at Martin Luther King and you look at who he had around him, it was white people who were his accomplice um, in this fight who, and there were white people that died during the civil rights movement. And we have to say that out loud, right? Um, and so it wasn't really surprising. I've had some amazing accomplices in this work who are like, whatever we can do to help, let us know. I think that right now, you know, one of the things I noticed Will Smith continuously says is, is that it's not that it just started happening, it's that there's video footage continuously, right? So we've seen it with Eric Gardner, we've seen it with Andrew Kirst, and now we're seeing it with George Floyd and Rashard Brooks and Tamir Rice, and the, and the names continue. And so I think people are like, um, at this point, when you watch these videos, regardless of what color you are, when you watch it, you understand that it's murder. And, and how do we sort of take the first steps uh, toward, toward dealing with uh, the issue of policing and, 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 uh, and changing the terms of that? Um, you know, on Beacon Hill just yesterday, um, leaders of the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus uh, appeared with Governor Baker. They've got a bill that, you know, takes some steps talking about developing a program for certifying police in Massachusetts. We're one of a handful of states that actually doesn't have that currently, uh, which is, it's kind of a, a mechanism by which uh, police could be decertified and, and thrown off the force if warranted. Um, and, uh, you know, there's talk of some other, other measures like that. I, is that. Is that moving in the right direction? Uh, what, do you, what do you all think? Well, I, let me just jump in real quick. I think that the decertification effort or certification decertification effort that um, the governor is um, putting out, you know, it, it is a step, but I'm not convinced that it is the steps that we really need to take around having real accountability for the police department. They have a certification decertification process in Minnesota and in Minneapolis, and we see uh, what happened there. 
And so um, my, my issue is that for every step for improved training that we can put together, there always seems to be police officers who find a way around it and continue to exhibit the behavior that they exhibit. And so when we talk about change, we're talking about something that goes beyond what I would call band-aid steps to try to um, you know, fix something to calm down the masses. The masses are not going to be calm now. They used to throw the issues of black-on-black, so-called black-on-black violence on us. People like myself and uh, mothers and uh, you know, street workers uh, that have been going on for 30 years is evidence that the community has you know, long stepped to the plate to try to stop the violence in the community. And so it's not even about that. It's about this system, the structures of the system that need to change. The police is the most visible manifestation of it, but it's not the only thing. I mean, everything needs to change. That's how I feel. Yeah, so I'm right there with you, Rev. I feel like what he did is superficial. I think we need to, I think Mayor Walsh took an initial step, but it needs to go a little deeper. I think we need more funding towards prevention and social justice movements um, because it's been proven that once we have what we need, we're able to take care of our people. But we consistently get less, or if any at all, um, in funding on the nonprofit spectrum, on the small business spectrum, and just equity across the board. And so what I, when we protest on Monday, it will be to the state house to tell Governor Baker, we want funding, adequate funding in violence prevention. Every year they cut that budget. Every year that budget is cut. So if we're not preventing crime, then we're perpetuating it. Um, and so there are so many of us, I have a nonprofit, I just became one in 2017. I had to shift from my food relief efforts into now raising money to start something that was supposed to launch April 3rd, but got postponed because of COVID, which is our social impact center, which would directly address food insecurity, provide help with uh, bill payment and rental assistance, provide a computer center and an outlet for young people to come and record music and all the things. These are the things we wanna see funding go to. So I'm on the, on, I, I agree with defunding the police department. I don't believe the superficial steps are going to work because we also have to recognize that they have a culture that they want us to not have, which is a gang culture. They don't tell on each other. They have a code of silence and they function um, in that entity. and before we can even address the problem, we have to acknowledge that it is one. And I have yet for the police department to acknowledge that racism and white supremacy is plagued in that department. And, and so now we're here and I just feel like people are tired of the, you know, for, for years I complained about, and Reverend Brown knows this, I'm like, y'all gotta do more than basketball games and ice cream. Like that's not gonna, we're so far past that now where even if they tried, it ain't gonna work. But like we have to do adequate things. And I think the steps that Mayor Walsh took in regards to funding is an initial step. I think we need to go a little harder and a little deeper with uh, funding. And do you think, I mean, I just saw today that uh, I think uh, the mayor said, you know, he's pretty much gone as far as he plans to in terms of diverting funds with this cutting off of a little bit of their overtime budget. This comes as we're reading today about just the kind of incredible salaries that some police officers are are pulling in dozens of them earning over $300,000 a year uh, through different uh, overtime and other kinds of, uh, of shifts they pull. 
but he seemed to suggest that, you know, that's sort of as far as he's willing to go. And uh, I, you know, it feels like it's just kind of a moment of kind of push coming to shove where it's going to be hard to sort of, you know, sort of keep everybody completely happy. Uh, you know, he, it seems like he's not looking to rock the boat too much within the police department uh, and sort of the, the, the way things have operated there, certainly in terms of well, funding. Well, I would say the 800 pound gorilla there within this whole scenario is the police unions mm. and the way in which they ardently protect, um, you know, police officers at all costs. They do that to the detriment of the community. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the negotiations for the new contracts for the unions are supposed to begin within a month or two. And mm -hmm. so it's going to be a real challenge for not just the mayor, but the whole city. I mean, you know, I understand declaring racism as a public health crisis. I think it's a bold step. I applaud the mayor for it. But racism is not like a cold. Hmm. Racism is not like a flu. It is something that has plagued the entire community and it has plagued the entire community for an, a very long time. And if we're talking about solutions, then we have to go hardcore with that. My example is housing. We've had decades of failing housing policies. We've had redlining that has forced black people to be in certain places and it feels like the police department has uh, moved in a containment strategy to try to keep people and the violence contained in one place. And so for me, if you really wanna try to address the issues around race and racism, then you'll start with some real solutions that will, first of all, help people live in a decent place and live in a place that if there was no redlining, they would, have right now. Um, that's part of the reason why the reparations movement has gained so much steam throughout the United States and particularly among the African-American community because we have been with these structural issues hemmed into this space where we've had to deal with the cultural phenomenon of violence. We can't do that anymore. Right. And I just would say, I, I don't want to speculate on what he may have meant or what he may have thought or said. What I will say is, is there were so many people who told us we wouldn't get this far. Um, and I've had multiple conversations with Mayor Walsh. Um, so I knew about the fact that he was about to do what he was going to do. And I think it's a step in the right direction. I, I don't I don't leave nothing um, to think that it can't change because pressure bust pipes. Right. And so with everything that's happening in this country now, I think it's critical for our community to understand not to stop. We have to continue to go. I know oftentimes we get weary, we fall off. We receive something, we think, great, we got something at least. And that just comes from us being people who just get exhausted and tired because we've been fighting this fight for so long. I just need us not to give up, continue to apply pressure, continue to fight, continue to hold people accountable, but also, we talk a lot about the mayor. The governor has a part to play. This is a Republican governor who does not have one, if only one, Black cabinet member who has consistently cut money from the violence prevention budget over the course of the last few years. Um, I haven't heard him allocate anything in regards to violence prevention and social justice except for offering more COVID testing sites. We're going to need more than just a, a, a Q-tip to test COVID to fix what's happening right now. 
Um, and so we got to be able to apply pressure and accountability collectively. And then, then I would say around the policing piece, you know, um, I've worked with the police department at, here in Boston and worked with police departments over the country, you know, for these last decades. And, you know, it's true. The Boston Police Department is one of the most progressive police departments that we have in the United States. But what it does not talk about is that it is a progressive police department within a structure that has always brought down African-Americans. And so when we talk about change, we're not just talking about changing the police department. We're talking about changing the way we look at housing, changing the way we look at employment, changing the way we look at healthcare, changing everything, and to try to find some way to make up for the centuries of oppression that we have felt over the years. And how do you view that, Monica? Because, uh, uh, you know, this question of, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna ask uh, Reverend Brown about that fact that I know he's been involved in efforts to kind of try to make common cause, work with police, you know, on issues affecting uh, uh, black communities over the years. Uh, I get the sense you're a little more uh, dubious of that, that kind of approach. I think you guys both have uh, the same end goals in mind, but you may uh, see uh, sort of the road there a little bit differently. So I tried it Rev's way in regards to working with the police or, you know, um, I tried it. It didn't work for me. And the reason why it didn't work is because for a lot of them, there's a refusal to acknowledge that there's an issue. They become extremely defensive and they deem it as an attack. And it's like, no, it's a fact. Black folks are dying at the hand of police officers and we need a change to happen. But I'm also cognizant that even black officers get mistreated within that same system structure. And even black officers experience the very things that we're experiencing as uh, civilians and citizens. And so I've given up on the whole, let's partner and figure it out. Now I'm at the point where the it's a systematic problem. Let's change it from the inside. And I guess to what Rev said a little while ago, police unions are the responsible parties in this that have the a lot of power. And so that'll be our next uh, stomping ground is to figure out how do we um, attack that hierarchy, not them as individuals, but figure out how we get to that. Because even in Stefan Clark over in California, they came up with the Stefan Clark law, it was passed. And then once the police union got a hold of the legislation, it was so watered down. They removed so many things from it that at, at, by the time they were done, there really wasn't enough protections for us as black people. And that's what continues to happen. And so um, I would love to dive into that as to one of the fights that we need to be having that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to how strong they are. And I'm, I'm not anti-union, but I'm anti that one. Mm -hmm. But so, you just don't, I was going to say, you don't have a lot of faith in, in sort of trying to reform the police. Is that right, Monica? Or what would, I mean, what would you want to see happen right now with the Boston police? So I'm, I'm with defunding them, but I'm also cognizant we live in a commonwealth, so it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that crime pays in Massachusetts. So I'm a realist, um, but I would love a lot of money to be shifted from the police department over to violence prevention efforts and movements and social justice movements to people who are actually on the ground like Rev. Rev does a lot of work independently and through the work that he does, um, which we plan to partner with him and get insight, but he always like supports me and everything. And so 
just finding those people who are on the ground doing the work and trying to empower them and sustain them so that they can continue to do this fight. I know me personally, I need to hire people. I've been doing this movement by myself. I'm tired. I got six children, so <laughs> I would love to get to the point to be able to hire people, bring people on, train them and everything that I've learned and give them the opportunity to continue this fight on because in a minute, I'm going to need a nap. <laughs> yep, I know that's the truth. And <laughs> part of the reason why I support Monica is because I've been where she has been. I mean, 30 years ago, things were very different. And, um, you know, I was uh, Monica's age. I don't want to betray my age right now, but... But, um, you know, getting out into the streets, working with, um, you know, with communities around reducing violence and then finding police officers who were willing to work with me, uh, which was a challenge, I would, I would have to say. Uh, but because we were able to do that, we were able to do some extraordinary things. And it wasn't just me. It was street workers. It was um, community mothers. It was folks who would gather use together on a regular basis to, to do positive things. It was something where the whole system changed. And, and I look at the work that Monica is doing as part of a continuum that I'm a part of. I mean, you know, I helped to uh, do some things, uh, you know, some decades ago, she's taking the ball and she's running with it right now. And, you know, I'd like to do everything I can to help her run as fast as she can. So Which she does. You know, um, we can actually see the meaningful change that we need to see for this entire society. I mean, if we're if we are a community of laws, then, you know, people are working on the laws part, but there's not enough work on the community part. And yeah. part of the reason why the community is in an uproar right now is because there's so much that's been left undone. And so um, this movement is, you know, in my opinion, the best hope, the best hope that we have to um, make some real difference. And, uh, and both of you, you know, and the organizations you lead, you know, have, have been addressing issues around violence in, uh, in the community. And I just wonder how you view, you know, this idea that has been around for a while that Black communities, some people would say, have been both over-policed and under-policed. Uh, I mean, that's kind of been the, the common refrain that the over-policing comes in the form of all the kind of, uh, uh, you know, harassment of low-level things that, you know, led exactly to, to George Floyd's death. It was it led to Eric Garner's death. And, uh, you know, those are just the two prominent examples. But on the under-policing side, uh, Monica, I mean, you've written recently and have been sort of screaming from the rooftops about, especially in recent years in Boston, when we've seen an overall remarkable decrease in gun violence and homicide, and that, you know, you've been indignant at that kind of city leaders kind of taking victory laps around that when, when uh, you know, gun violence is still uh, plaguing, uh, you know, black communities. Uh, so how, yeah, how I, I actually disrupted a panel by WBUR. That, uh, that you guys covered um, because I listened to House Speaker DeLeo and some other guys sit on the stage and go, crime is down overall, but it's up in urban communities. And I'm like, so if it's up in urban communities, it's not down. And I just think at this point, what needs to happen is that the people closest to the problem know how to solve it. 
give us what we need so that we can begin to address this issue both on a ground level and collectively because when you talk about everything that's happening in regards to community violence COVID happened, but COVID didn't cause it. COVID exacerbated an issue that we were already dealing with. So people who were hungry, it got worse. If you were homeless and struggling to pay your rent, you're now going through evictions. And so we have an issue that we've needed to address for a long time. We just overlooked it. So when a pandemic hit, it goes, oh my God, COVID caused me to be homeless. No, it didn't. And so I just need them to not give all the money they give into the police department and give it to people like us, plain and simple. There's just no other way to say it. One officer should not be making upwards of $400,000 a year. The mayor doesn't even make that. And he's running the whole city. Yeah, so uh, I would agree with that. Um, you know, the back stoops and the front porches are the real indicators of whether or not the violence has dissipated in all the communities. And so if you're living in a part of the city where you still hear gunfire nightly, where you're still worried about your children when they're out there because of the random violence, then it doesn't feel safe at all. And because we had a low of 38 homicides a couple of years ago, you still had 38 families that lost the loved one, 38 funerals to do. And family and community trauma to deal with as a result of those 38 shootings. And so, um, um, you know, the goal for me, and it's always been for me nationally, is not to get violence to a quote unquote manageable level. It is to change the culture uh, in which the violence has been fomenting so that people can live in a community, in the same communities that folks in the suburbs live in or folks in the quote unquote safe parts of the city live in, you know. Uh, my, my children, and now, you know, eventually in some years, my grandchildren would wanna live in a place where, you know, they don't have to worry about violence, where there would be plenty of opportunities for education, learning and growth and recreation, just like you see out in, you know, West Roxbury or some of the suburbs and whatnot. We, we deserve that as a people and as a community. Also, I just want to highlight for you guys, because I like to read numbers. Um, there's been a lot of silence around the numbers for community violence. And I think mainly because if I could just read these to you guys from the BPD website. So homicides are up, non-fatal shootings are up, overall total shooting victims are up. So right now at this time, so this, this report is up until the 14th of June at the same time last year. So in 2019, at this point, we had 14, we're up 16 on homicides. Uh, Non-fatal shootings in 2019, we were at 57. We're at 79 as of June 14th. Um, total overall shootings last year, we were at 71. We're up to 95 right now. That is a 24 increase. And, and what I need people to understand is, is we can't just one of our biggest frustrations with the police department is you come out when it's down, you're silent when it goes up, right? Crime is up overall right now. Um, and so we say defund the police department and fund programs like Rev, like myself, like others in this city who are doing work. This is a crucial time to do so. This is not a time to play defense. Crime is up across the board right now. 
And so the same energy they had talking about when it was down a couple of years and they were telling me how, no, 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 Monica, you got it wrong. I need them to have that same energy and prevention methods. And that's why we're marching on Monday. That's why we're petitioning Governor Baker, because the Boston Police Department's data proves that it's up and changes need to happen. And are you, uh, in the longer view of things, Monica, do you feel optimistic today or, or how, are you, how are you viewing things going I'm forward? I'm always hopeful because if I lose hope, I would have gave up a long time ago. So hope is all I have. Um, I've, I'm seeing changes. You know, my grandmother says civil rights is one in every generation, right? So I'm not gonna end racism, defund the police department and cure it in my generation, right? But if I can get them a step closer than where we were, then I succeeded. And I think that's what has to happen for all of us. If everything that we're working on, what Rev is working on, the young people from Teen Empowerment who have been protesting, the people who have been rallying, it is a collective movement right now. And I don't realize, I don't think people realize it that we don't even have time to go back and forth with each other because we're all in this fight together. And so collectively change is happening. We just gotta keep the momentum and keep going. And Reverend Brown, give you the, give you the last word. Are you feeling now? Hopeful, or, or how would you put it? I like Monica's last word. I mean, you know, she's absolutely correct. I should say her grandmother is absolutely correct. I mean, in every generation, we have movements to, uh, we have a civil rights movement. My hope is that, you know, either my grandchildren's generation or my great-grandchildren's generation will not have to fight that fight, that, that um, what we do, in our lifetimes will serve the community enough so that um, we'll be able to break that cycle. Because right now, that cycle is continuing. Reverend Jeffrey Brown, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Good to hear from you, Monica. Thanks, Rev. It was good to see you again, and thank you guys for having me. And thank you as well, Monica Cannon-Grant. And this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>